Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show, become a patron. We are entirely listener-supported and couldn't do any of this without you, so thank you. So if you'd like to become a patron, you can do that at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two episodes a week, and the Monday bonus is a thank you just for patrons. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, Pre-order Jules's new book coming in January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny or request them both at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I am not feeling awesome. Just a heads up. I'm chronically ill, as some of our listeners may know, and I've been on this like one medication for my disease for over a decade until this April when my insurance denied it. So this is now month nine of not having access God. to my meds. Yeah, my body is a, a bit of a mess and uh, such a mess, actually, that I finally have proof of my disease because I got so sick while they were denying my medication that finally my blood work uh, biocertifies <laughs> me. God. Yeah, I've got my biomarkers now. Um, so, you know, I'm my, you know, equilibrium is off. I'm flaring right now. But today is a really important episode. So I wanted to be here anyways, but apologies if I'm a little loopy. Fortunately, you always say that and then and no one could fine. possibly tell. <laughs> yeah, it is. A, that's the benefit of an audio medium. I that suppose. is. That is. I mean, if if we had to be on camera for this show, everyone would definitely know. Um, but uh, <laughs> oh, no. fortunately, uh, my two amazing co-hosts, Abby and Artie, are here today. This is, again, a really important episode about what is going on with COVID right now and the social construction of knowledge using data and data visualization. So joining me today are my co-hosts, Artie Vierkant. Hello. And of course, this episode truly could not happen without the one and only Abby Cardis. <laughs> Hi. So, you know, I warned you all that I'm not feeling well today, but, you know, I'm setting that aside and want to be here sort of regardless of how I feel, because what we need to talk about today is really super important, not just for the sick people like me, uh, but for all of us, because COVID is a problem for every one of us still. Ironically, it's especially a problem for people who think it's no big deal. But anyways, we are heading into winter. And as we have covered on this show many times in the past, while COVID is not a seasonal disease, it circulates year round, winter typically so far has been the worst time of year for mortality. So while the official figures of COVID deaths right now might not be as shocking or extreme as in past years, what we're going to talk about today is how that official number is really constructed and what if anything, we kind of know about what's going on with COVID deaths right now. And how completely abstracted it's become. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. As we've been preparing for COVID year four, the latest in our annual pandemic year in review series coming out first for patrons on Monday, December 11th, we've had to grapple with a very difficult question, which is what data on COVID is even still reliable? Um, with so much dismantled, with so little to work with, what do we actually even know right now? And what are we, for lack of a better word, sort of engaged in an elaborate game of like public make-believe around right now? You know, these kinds of like fantasies of surveillance that we've talked about pale in comparison to the actual public health data collection and reporting that um, we're working with in the real world. 
Um, since the end of the public health emergency, the CDC no longer calculates its two competing COVID transmission metrics, um, the confusingly named community transmission level and community level system that we've talked about many <laughs> times. That was the red map that got turned sherbert. Um, so <laughs> or we'll, pastel. Or depending. pastel. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in this episode. And really, we're sort of, you know, entering uncharted territory. It's more like a 2020 redo, but this time we're intentionally going into a COVID winter with like no picture of what's going on. <laughs> the CDC still collects death data, though slower and patchier than before, which we're going to talk about. And I, you know, I think I've even mentioned this on mic before, how this has been something that for me has been really confusing. But when you look at most of the public facing materials for the CDC, it's now mostly reporting deaths as this percentage change week on week number. So we're, we're going to get into that uh, in detail. And I think twice, Abby, I've already begged you to walk me through this today, but we're going to go <laughs> further. <laughs> Um, and of course, as we'll also talk about today, uh, you know, this episode is being recorded and released in early December 2023. And about a week ago, the CDC released a new map. Oh, boy. Yes. Um, they made a new map again. <laughs> <laughs> and in this one, um, they did finally put up a, a national wastewater dashboard. But the catch is that, well... Um, it's all blue. Yeah, this map shows the entire country in shades of calming blue, uh, even for the highest case counts. And it's also not like a ton of new data collection points have been added. So, no. Yeah, yeah it's it's a whole thing. So today, yeah. in some ways, is a sort of preamble to COVID year four. Um, we're going to talk about what we know, but mostly actually we're going to talk about what we don't know and what COVID data actually still exists now, you know. What's really important to understand is that, again, over the last few years, the federal government in the United States has made the COVID data picture more and more abstract. And we need to, I think, start by talking about how many people are actually dying a week right now in the official count. Um, it's been about 1,000 COVID deaths a week in the U.S. since August. And since part of what we're talking about today is, is like the inability to have like some material sense of, of where COVID is and how that's been constructed, like I think starting with sort of where we actually sort of at right now is is really important. Yeah. So as B said, um, as many of you, I think, will know, we have COVID year four coming up. Um, I've been working on this for a few weeks already. And if all goes according to plan, as B mentioned, we'll have this up in the patron feed on Monday, uh, Monday the 11th. And this year, I think, felt a little different to prepare for, though. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that a lot of the story we're going to be walking through in COVID year four is to sort of look back uh, at the last year of the COVID response as essentially how the Biden administration sort of shut the lights off mm -hmm. on almost everything, you know, abstracted where it could and, and stopped certain things like data collection that B mentioned where it could. And then so there's this really key part of that, right, that B is that B is mentioning, which is the data picture. So we kind of decided to spin that into its own informal discussion, um, which is this uh, today. So as B mentioned, we're going to talk like a little bit through the data um, in part because COVID year four is already packed with events and policy shifts. Mm -hmm. um, I'll trust you guys to, for instance, not spoil for Phil and Jules, but my notes for COVID year four are already over 20,000 words. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that. Oh <laughs> um, so in any case, uh, you know, as B is mentioning, as I was preparing for it, I was we had this question, right? Like, fuck, what, what the fuck do we even know about COVID? 
anymore. Not in the sense of COVID itself. Obviously, we know it's still bad. Uh, we know it's killing and disabling a lot of people. Uh, and that it, basically it's all over the place. Um, but we used to have more numbers for mm-hmm. this and more kind of metrics. And I'll acknowledge, obviously, I think this has to be said too. Um, you know, we've never known how much long COVID either like Mm -hmm. uh we accept that there you know there are various different studies with you know different good guesses that you can find that make it clear that there are a lot of people quite a lot you know millions of people with long covid but you know that's like the biggest question mark always of all of this Mm -hmm. sort of always has been but there are things that we used to be much more clear on and i think you know most emblematic of this sort of data shift is if you go to the CDC website right now, we'll talk about the wastewater stuff in a minute because that blue map is uh, offensive. Um, <laughs> the blue part is especially offensive, I suppose. The fact that it's like it's good that there's a wastewater map, but like it's all blue. So mm-hmm. I, I pick a better color you. ramp, not you know. <laughs> but uh, I think most emblematic of this kind of data shift is that if you go to the CDC website right now, the main public facing information uh, for things like deaths and hospitalization shows percentage changes week on week. And uh, so, you know, for instance, if I go to CDC's website right now, I can see that weekly hospitalizations are a full 10 percent higher than they were the previous week, um, up to about 20,000 people hospitalized for COVID each week, uh, which is a lot. But that's something, you know, we can kind of click through and even in the most public facing of information, you can kind of right. click through and find it. Um, similarly, you can see that deaths are up 2.5%. Um, but like, what does that mean? Yeah. Like from what? <laughs> like, seriously, what the fuck does that mean? Well, and you can't I, compare it to the early points in the pandemic. Most right. right. They like, don't have the previous weeks and they don't have the the numbers associated with previous weeks. So it's like, right. oh, last week it was up 3% and this week it's up 2% from whatever the number was last week. Yeah. Um, There's like not even a complicated graph. There's like an arrow with no there's an arrow like, that's pointing down right what better <laughs> administrative burden than before you can look at this and understand like where covid deaths are you have to sit down and do some math right but so i, <laughs> yeah. I just want to i just want to pause here with this note which is you know one of the reasons i'm saying this is because if you've heard covid year three for example you'll know that in that year in review which was us looking back at 2022 one of the things i did every month was shout out the death figures um including breakthrough death percentage of those that we had information for by the way which that data set has there's no information for 2023 anymore so uh you know i wish i I wish i could have that information to save for covid year four but i i just won't um but you know that they nerfed us this year um (laughs) i mean yeah basically but you know my question for you is basically can you imagine if I had simply said at the end of every month in like COVID year three, okay, so January 2022, <laughs> deaths oh, were seven percent higher than they were in December. Like that like, means fucking the, nothing. It you know means what I mean? Nothing. Yeah. But <sighs> dematerialize. What we're getting to, uh, and this is really important. B mentioned this also at the top. You know that all that being said, the CDC does still produce deaths data. Uh, actually, so mm-hmm. not only are we going to be sharing these, we also are going to I'm going to read these in COVID year four also, um, but I'm going to read them sort of like for certain months in that in that episode. And here I'm going to we're going to kind of have a concentrated conversation about it for the main feed. Um, but basically, the CDC does still collect and produce and, you know, put put out publicly a data set of COVID deaths but not in such a way where you would know it, Mm -hmm. right? They don't highlight this. It's difficult to find. I'll throw to you, Abby, in a second, and you can tell us like the process uh, that you went through, you know, what you would think about all of this since you're the one who found this even. But, you know, basically 
uh, even because it's so buried, I'm going to do the rather unusual step of in the description of this episode, there is a direct link to the CDC NVSS um, National Vital Statistics. Is that what it's called? National mm-hmm. Vital National Vital Statistics System. <laughs> yeah, National Vital Statistics System data sheet uh, for COVID deaths. I'm going to link to that in the episode description. I will also do that for COVID year four too. So if you've you know been wondering where to find the actual number um, of COVID deaths that the CDC is reporting reporting not some weird percentage change week on week bullshit <laughs> with an um, arrow pointing down right <laughs> um here's your url right there in the episode description um we don't go- normally link to spreadsheets right um <laughs> i don't know why the hell not <laughs> and uh Fair. you know so that'll be there unless the cdc changes the url in which case uh if you're listening to this in the future and they've done that i don't know what to tell you except for um it probably proves the points we're going to be talking about later <laughs> in the episode um they've nerfed us again y'all <laughs> but so really quickly let me just go through um just at the top i want to make sure that uh we talk through these death numbers really quick so Again, we're going to talk a lot more in a minute about how these are calculated, um, some of the ways that these could possibly be either an undercount, uh, or at least we know that there are kind of holes in the reporting. Some states have right. like really weird, uneven reporting about this, um, and we know the requirements are different. So I'll just say, you know, again, we're we're sticking, you know, sticking pretty safe here. We're just saying this is what the CDC is reporting. And so just as sort of a preamble, because the CDC buries these behind a percentage change indicator, you know, again, I would be surprised if many people, even among some of our listeners, um, are aware that after sort of a brief dip below 1,000 deaths a week by the official count, we have been above 1,000 deaths a week again every week since August. And I'll note if you're looking at this uh, NVSS data sheet while I'm talking about this on, you know, if you've, if you've pulled it up or something while I'm talking, as, as we'll talk about in a second, these data lag, especially compared to the method where we used to get death information. So if you're looking at like the most recent two weeks, those tend to be lower and then they get updated over, you know, a couple a couple weeks later. Yeah, so, it's provisional. Um, it's what's called provisional death counts. So, right. Yeah. Um. But so, in fact, the lowest recorded death figure of all year came the week of July 8th, where the CDC reported 488 COVID deaths that week. As I mentioned, though, since August, we've had over a thousand COVID deaths a week in the U.S. So I'm just going to read those out. The week ending August 26th, there were a thousand and thirty seven COVID deaths. Ending September 2nd, one thousand one hundred and seventy deaths. The week ending September 9th, 1,290 deaths. Uh, September 16th, 1,378 deaths. September 23rd, 1,385 deaths. September 30th, 1,409 deaths. So all told, uh, that's about 5,462 deaths in September. Um, The week ending October 7th, saw 1,339 deaths. The week ending October 14th saw 1,268 deaths. Uh, October 21st, 1,311 deaths. October 28th, 1,228 deaths for about 5,146 deaths in October. And I'm only going to read sort of the two most recent weeks for November that we have data for that appears to have been more tabulated. But so week ending November 4th, 1,143 deaths and week ending November 11th, 1,190 deaths. Um, So, you know, I I think it's safe to say 
you know, I think this is kind of what I assumed was going on. Although I think the fact that this is that this is the amount of deaths that are happening, even as tabulated by the CDC. And there's just they're not saying anything Mm -hmm. about it other than this, you know, percent change indicator, I think um, is a huge problem. You know, it's a huge it's it's almost it's just it's so it's it's insulting first of all but it's also i think frankly just a little too on the fucking nose for everything that we've been saying this whole time in terms of like they're clearly just trying to sweep this under the rug and make it appear like it's no big deal and one of the best ways to do that is to take the actual number away that's being Mm -hmm. reported so that for instance not only when you go to the cdc but when you go to like the new york times for as long as they're still you know, reporting that they're going to be, they show the percent change indicator, just like the CDC. What were the number of deaths for the second week of September again? 1,378. That's the week that Biden, when Jill Biden was positive and Biden walked into that press briefing without the mask on and was like, oh, don't tell them that I wasn't wearing it. Yep. That's that week. Yep. So in any case, um, maybe while we just kind of sit with that, I wonder if like Abby, you could talk us through like, cause I had a lot of these questions for you too. We, we would like alongside COVID year four kind of in, in tandem, I've been, you know, like Abby and I have been kind of going back and forth talking about uh, these figures and figuring out what exactly we know for like a mm-hmm. couple of weeks. And like, I'm wondering, I guess if maybe Abby, you could talk through like how the process of how these death figures become these statistics like where we got these numbers from like yeah like like we (laughs) know i i alluded earlier to the fact that there are like holes in the data sheet some states are reporting in strange uh ways but also these are like as of the end of the public health emergency too the the sort of data source for these changed uh the, the data source for deaths changed so i wonder if you could walk us through some of that yeah yeah totally so the the data source for deaths sort of changed. Okay. What's confusing about this is that there are kind of two things going on at the same time that I think kind of feed back into and and sort of reinforce one another. The first thing that's going on is something that's going on with the actual process of like data collection. And since the end of the public health emergency, there have been some important changes to like what data are collected and how the data are collected that are affecting the picture that we're able to get of COVID transmission. And I'll get into that in just a second. And then the second thing that's going on is with how the data that is still being collected is being sort of packaged and visualized and presented um, to the public. And, And as you've mentioned several times already, like it's you know, the CDC is increasingly representing information about COVID as just like abstract symbols. Right. You know what I mean? Or like numbers that are really abstracted from the underlying number. Um, so to start, I guess, kind of from the first prong of this, there are two really important sources of case and like death data that have just been like discontinued since the end of the public health emergency. The first of these is the electronic laboratory reporting. So that was like electronic transmission of, you know, test results to state health authorities and the CDC and whatever. Now, like, well, like, like there was a 
there was a federal data reporting requirement that said that private labs had to report yes. positive mm-hmm. COVID cases. Yes, during and the that public- went away after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. went away with the termination of the public health emergency. Exactly. Yeah, uh, HHS had like the authority to require that all of these labs like report their COVID test results. Now this like electronic laboratory reporting, that's like an important priority for CDC. It really is a good thing, you know, like it improves the the transmission of health information, you know, not just for COVID, you know, where Shell Walensky was always complaining about, oh, we, we've got all these health departments that are receiving data by fax. Can you fax believe that? Um, yeah. And, you know, this like electronic reporting is obviously like a lot faster. It's like a lot more accurate. It's a lot more sort of interoperable with different data systems. Um, but they have just sort of gotten rid of this um, for COVID with the end of the of the PHE um, or of the public health emergency. So that, you know, that was where we got the the data about transmission, like actual community transmission of COVID. You know, obviously that data is not perfect. It it became less perfect and less representative um, as more and more people started using at-home tests. But, you know, that was underpinning the community levels system, you know, the the beautiful fields of green that we all remember. <laughs> um, and that has now gone away. Another thing that has gone away is what's called, okay, I always forget, the acronym is ACDC. I think it's Aggregated Cases and Deaths Counts. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of like a... Um, my my sense is that this was done because it's a little bit more timely than sort of waiting for the death reporting process via death certificates, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but this like ACDC was essentially an automated scrape, like the CDC would just like scrape information, you know, daily, weekly or whatever from, you know, state health department websites and dashboards and things like that. And so that was, I think, like a little bit more of like an up to the minute <laughs> um, picture right. of, you know, cases and deaths that was just being collected from all these disparate sources um, on the Internet. And that has been discontinued. Now, the CDC very confusingly says that since this has been discontinued, the source of the death data, mortality data for COVID has changed. But the source, I don't think. I actually don't think that the source of data has changed because the source of death data all kind of comes from death certificates. And, you know, we have this this system of of death reporting in the United States that is kind of federalized. Do you think that they mean that like the interlocutor between the death certificates and how they then get reported up to the CDC has changed? I, I don't think so. I just think it okay. means I, I I could totally be wrong, but I think it means that they're just no longer doing these scrapes from these like state health department websites gotcha. and, okay. and stuff like that, which I mean, there probably isn't much data. I feel like a lot of, you know, states and jurisdictions have stopped, <laughs> you know, updating yeah. those dashboards anyway. So mm-hmm. there's probably not really anything to scrape. So the underlying death data, though, I mean, it would be the same data, you know, that like the, the process is is kind of the same in all 50 states for reporting deaths, although there are some like limitations um, for this. So I can, I mean, would it be helpful? Do you want me to just kind of go through very quickly, like the process of how like a death certificate becomes? Yeah. How does uh, a death like, certificate become a statistic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> schoolhouse. I always love to joke about schoolhouse rock with stuff like this. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, it goes through like a whole process, like how a bill becomes a law. Um, so, okay, death reporting is done at the 
state level. So someone dies, like let's say a, a person you know dies of COVID in Pennsylvania. Um, the cause of death is determined by the certifier. You know, there are all these different people that fill out death certificates. The certifier is usually um, a physician, a medical examiner, or a coroner. They will fill out, you know, the, the underlying cause of death. That death certificate will then be registered with like the the town or the city, the county um, where the person died. That triggers the Social Security Administration to be notified. I think um, that death records become coupled with birth records. And then once that happens, you know, all these municipalities like cities, towns, whatever, transmit death certificates up to the state, you know, whatever the state vital statistics office is. The state vital statistics office probably like, you know, cleans, <laughs> cleans the data up and then transmits it to the National Vital Statistics System. And then the states can also share it with like the National Center for Health Statistics, like the CDC, uh, whatever. So the National Vital Statistics System is just kind of like sucking up, like hoovering up um, mm. these, you know, uh, death certificates that are coming in through the state. And the process of completing a death certificate is like not without error or not without inaccuracy <laughs> But it's very hard to say, like, where the inaccuracies come in. I know yeah. that there's some, like, published literature out there showing that, like, up to, like, I don't know, 40 percent, like, almost half of um, death certificates completed in, like, an academic hospital have an error in the cause of death. Um, mm. The cause of death kind of has these different components. Um, there are I also, know also like, even that there was, like, a um, not to be referencing this, but, like, okay, uh, in terms of just, like, how widely known it is that it's like you know by no means a foolproof system basically i think there's even like a john oliver on this that talks about how three quarters of death investigations are done by coroners who are not required like coroners are generally mm -hmm. speaking not required to have any um medical training so mm -hmm. there's there's that yeah um, this comes up a lot like um this comes up a lot actually in the sort of like epidemiologic literature like research on um cause of death reporting for like fatal overdoses because any type of like accidental death will sort of trigger, you know, a medical examiner or a coroner investigation. And like, there's a lot showing that like, you know, the, the, the cause of death, the accuracy of the underlying cause of death, like really varies depending on who is filling out the death certificate, you know, like whether it's right. like the medical examiner or the coroner, there's like regional variations in that. So that that's basically how it happens. Um, yeah, that's basically how like a, a COVID death becomes a death statistic. Now, you know, as I said, there are many, many opportunities and it's hard to say because, you know, every municipality, like every small jurisdiction, every hospital has like different people that are doing this certification process and then like transmitting to the state and then nationally. But the underlying, you know, so it, it's it's hard to say how that is is going you know how accurate like the the coding of COVID as an underlying cause of death is like across this vastly you know heterogeneous right. country of ours which then in itself gets like passed to states who then i know that for instance like new york state made a big show of um saying that they were going to make sure that they combed through really carefully to like uh disaggregate like deaths with COVID versus deaths from COVID, like when they do their reporting up or something yeah. you know that that kind of stuff yeah and i mean maybe they did i mean i i would be surprised right. if I, I'm the not state sure actually the had the resources to commit to mm -hmm. like to do that um yeah 
But I'm, you know I'm just I mean? saying this is something like that the governor Kathy Hochul said like a, a more than a year ago or something. Yeah. That, that's all. So I'm, a I'm just fantasy noting. of surveillance right there. What, what totally. we're getting to is basically that like we're saying these figures, but this is just like the, these are the ones that are just like the the like totally verified ones um that mm-hmm. it's like entirely possible even likely that they're an undercount right yeah yeah i mean it's definitely it's almost certain that they're an undercount you know what i mean but it's it's hard to say because it's so the process of who is filling these things out is so heterogeneous it's really hard to say like right. or to make an educated guess about like oh like how much are we possibly undercounting you know what i mean like mm-hmm. totally especially because as of like the end of september the cdc no longer publishes a uh, excess deaths estimate that it was doing well yeah i just want to say that like you know i i know that there's like a line that we're treading here where we're trying to be really deliberate basically about describing what can't be known right technically mm-hmm. speaking because what we're critiquing is like yes like there is a point of discussion that is like a common agreed upon point among people who give a shit about covid that like those death numbers are probably not accurate but there is a bigger belief that we are up against here which is that those death numbers are accurate to a t and reliably yeah. present us a picture fact, yeah which is a different belief yeah, <laughs> right yeah. Other, or inflated right which is a whole other can of worms right? but, thing. but what we're specifically pushing up against here right now is that that broad belief that we have the technology and the resources and the data infrastructure to have this perfect picture of what's going on at such a level to even determine that, for example, those numbers could be overinflated and that we really need to do a with four distinction because otherwise we're going to have really messy data like that with four claim, you know, the kind of like, are people being hospitalized with COVID or for COVID? Like, is it an incidental infection and they really broke their leg? Did they die of a heart? Like, those kinds of like nitpicking, parsing arguments that many of us have spent, have spent so much time pushing back on throughout the pandemic. I hope that those are laid bare for as like baseless and ridiculous as they are, yeah. right? To the like in the kind of line that we're treading here, where we're we're trying to make very clear like the limits of our perception of what is going on, yeah. like through data. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think I think that um, long COVID advocates have done a really good job of uh, pointing this out for a long time, especially with stuff like you know po- pointing to situations like someone gets uh, you know someone with long COVID maybe no longer has a acute COVID infection, dies of a cardiac complication or something Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. um and then you know that death is not recorded as a covid death that death is recorded as you know cardiac whatever right Mm -hmm. please continue abby sorry well this is interesting because uh maybe i shouldn't even like launch into this but there is um an nvss document there was like a vital statistics reporting guidance document that nvss put out in 2020 for people that fill out death certificates for how to certify COVID deaths. Mm. And I know that that document has been expanded this year to include how to certify like deaths from like post-acute sequelae of, of, of COVID, you know, AKA long COVID. Um, I don't remember what it says or how good it is, but yeah, I, I, I'm not trying to be so like view from nowhere (laughs) about it, but Um, There are just like severe limitations on what we can know and even on what we can make an educated guess about. And that Mm -hmm. just like simply 
sucks. Like, I don't think that's right at all. Like, I don't think that, you know, we or, uh, you know, other advocates or anyone really should be in this situation of having to try to piece this shit together from these really obscure, like hard to find data sets on the CDC website and things like that. But I think that part of the, the mystification, like, I don't know, there's, there's a little bit of mystification because there still are like, (laughs) I think perhaps unfortunately for the Biden white house and the Biden CDC, like death reporting is something that happens. (laughs) Right. And you know, like, right. They can't make death certificates go away. They can't make death certificates go away. And like, the death certificates that are recorded in these provisional counts, like they have COVID-19 somewhere on that. You know what I mean? Like that's basically what we can say is like COVID-19 is like an important cause of death, like enough so that they're being captured in um, these provisional counts. And like that has not, that process has not changed and like didn't change with the end of the public health emergency. Um but it feels like maybe some of this other data stuff and like these these mystifications and how the data are being presented is perhaps intentional. You know what I mean? Like perhaps like a maneuver to make it seem like we actually have less information about about COVID right. deaths um, than we really do or to, to minimize. I mean, the shift to a percentage change, that's that seems like a pretty blatant intentional. I mean, that's, that is know. just like aggressive. You know what yeah. I mean? Like as like a, you know, I am not I'm not a science communicator. As a scientist. <laughs> as a scientist. But like as a person who went to grad school with a lot of dorks, you know what I mean? Who were like trying to gild their parachute with like a fake career in hashtag SciComm, you know? And I mean, these are the types of people that are running CDC and it's just like, okay, everyone knows that this is just like, it's the, it's the data equivalent of like crossing your arms in front of your chest. You know what I mean? It's just like Mm -hmm. totally meant to just like repulse people and repel people and make the numbers that exist like totally totally meaningless even though like you know with um with transmission we straight up just don't have the numbers like with deaths we do have the numbers yeah but they're being presented in this incredibly like aggressive and off-putting and and difficult to understand way um and it's not like i don't know the cdc i've read a lot of like documents about changes to like covid data collection after the end of the public health emergency and the cdc keeps saying that all these other like data sources that they still have you know they have some sentinel reporting they've got some you know they've got covid net which like looks at covid outcomes among like hospitalized patients um they've got some data sets that kind of track you know like emergency department admissions or i guess confirmed covid diagnoses among like emergency department admissions And in all the documents that they put out, they kind of say like, oh, yeah, this is great. You know, this is how we this is how we do surveillance now. You know, this like this percent they they're they're sorry, I'm fumbling for what I'm trying to say. And I'm getting so offended that like my (laughs) thoughts are collapsing in on themselves. But like they're they're saying that all these other indicators that are like nowhere near as good as transmission, you know what I mean? Like indicators of transmission, that's like electronic (laughs) laboratory reporting. Um, They're like, well, these are all just completely fine. And, you know, these are suitable, you know, alternatives to what we had before, which they, they completely are not. They give us a totally different picture that is much less clear. And I've also, you know, like they're doing the percentage change week on week. 
And they're also like they're bragging about how they have all these new metrics and new Mm. data sources. And I'm like, this isn't a fucking new metric. Like you just added a column to this data set where you're calculating (laughs) the percentage of all of the deaths in the Mm. United States that COVID deaths were for that Mm -hmm. week. And I mean, that's a real thing that's in the provisional death counts is like, oh, okay, COVID deaths are X percent now. Well, and that's how it's most commonly reported now. I know. And it's like, once again, what is the purpose here other than to minimize like the on the ongoing burden of like COVID morbidity? We have no idea about, you know what I mean? Except through these very abstracted um, indicators of like people getting admitted to the emergency department. But, you know, what what is the purpose of presenting it this way as a percentage of the total, if not to make it seem? uh, Yeah. If not to minimize. Yeah. Just this ongoing Mm -hmm. burden of of mortality. Um, it's, um, it's really like spectacular work, but it's not spectacular scientific work. You know what I mean? And as, as like psychom, it, it couldn't be, it couldn't be any more like misleading and minimizing. Mm. I don't think. I really appreciate that point, Abby. And I mean, maybe this is like too much of a, it's not really an aside, but what I can't stop thinking about while you're talking is this one uh, quote I flagged from Ellen Samuels' book, Fantasies of Identification. Mm. She's talking about like blood quantum and uh, the Indian Health Service in the United States and the way that they like track and catalog, you know, blood quantum data. And and, and the book is, is great. I highly recommend it. But uh, this is a passage where Samuels is talking about um, DNA, the kinds of like genetic lottery, Catherine Page Harden style, like extrapolation about, um, you know, genetic traits and heritability that like echo and harken back to the era of eugenics. Um, So Samuels, and so it sort of points to like, well, yeah, I'll just read the quote. And yet fantasies of identification have never really been about science. They are about culture, about politics, about the rule of law and the unruliness of bodies. What DNA has to tell us about how our bodies work and how our identities are shaped is still largely unknown. But the power of DNA and the cultural imaginary, what Sarah Franklin and Jackie Stacy call the genetic imaginary, has already formed the basis for 20th and 21st century fantasies of identification that bear a striking resemblance to those preceding fantasies based on less reputable scientific claims. Indeed, the very fact that genetics is comparatively reliable science seems to provoke even more extreme and expansive fantasies about it. Genetic essentialism, the idea that DNA offers a master key to human identity and has already penetrated culture and politics to an astounding degree, considering the acknowledgement by geneticists that they have only scratched the surface of genomic knowledge. If we recall the wistful yearning for a definitive mark of identity in the 19th century and the search that led from birthmarks to fingerprints, we can understand why and how DNA began to be deployed for identification while it was still in its very early stages of being discovered, much less understood. Desire drives fantasy. Fantasy demands realization. Realization produces material effects. Science in these cases functions not as the basis for these effects, but merely as their justification. I love that. And what I, what's so, I don't know, what I want people to take away from this or, or reflect on as a result of, of this conversation and what I think that, that quote that you just read illuminates so beautifully is that data, we have this idea that like data exist and that like data are like facts about the world, you know, that we are simply recording or writing down, but data are in actuality 
active social constructions, you know, yeah. mm. um, and the process of socially constructing data, you know, like whether it's genetic data, like COVID data, whatever, um, is is ongoing and is is very, very tied up in these kind of like social and political relationships, you know, and, and I think that what we are, I don't know, I think what we're kind of witnessing right now is the active construction or maybe deconstruction as the case may be um, of COVID data as like an entity by, by the Biden administration. And it kind of echoes, okay, I don't know if this is like the right place for this. Um, Go for it. <laughs> I don't know if this is the right place for this anecdote, but uh, as I've been like preparing for this episode, I've been thinking a lot about this <laughs> taking, you know, just winding the clock all the way back to my favorite time and place, the industrial revolution <laughs> in England. Um, but there was kind of a high profile controversy um, in the industrial or during the industrial revolution in England between Edwin Chadwick, who was like the dude who's responsible for, for sanitation, like for sewer construction, but also the dude who was the administrator of this like awful reformed poor law, you know, that was so stingy and like not not providing, you know, relief whatsoever, like really just punishing um, people that were, you know, working in, in factories at this time. There was a big controversy Bog between standard this, for the poor laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> this dude Chadwick and this other guy named Farr, F-A-R-R, who was kind of a statistician and um, he was sort of like the the cause of death certifier. And he got into like kind of a big, you know, there's a lot of like politics around this and like career politics and stuff. But this guy far got into a big spat with Chadwick. I think it was like letters that were published in a newspaper, you know, like so like 1840s, whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the spat was about like basically whether it was possible for people to die of starvation um, in England. And Edwin Chadwick, who was administering <laughs> this awful poor law and for whom, you know, the let, me, the let me guess, couldn't be not possible. Couldn't be Exactly. Well, yeah, for him, the idea that people were dying of starvation on this meager poor relief was a huge political problem. And for this other guy far, you know, he was really interested. I think he actually spent a lot of his career getting into like the classification of, you know, causes of, of death and and working out, you know, the causal sequence that leads to a death. And so, you know, Chadwick's position was no, uh, no, 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 no. Like, you know, this person died of, of consumption, you know, or this person died of pneumonia or this person died of this, that, and the other thing. Like, you cannot say that these people died of starvation. And Farr was like, well, yeah, but like all these people are starving. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like whether you die of consumption or pneumonia or whatever, like the fact of the matter is that you, you might not, these people might not have, have died of these things. Like had they not be, had they not been incredibly, you know, weakened by chronic malnutrition and starvation, which, you know, I mean, the, the parallels between, you know, public health and the Industrial Revolution and today are, are, are many. But I think just to like, I don't know, loop back to, to what or some of what you were getting at with that, that quote that you read, I think there are like, yeah, there are like fantasies in the public imagination that, you know, even that the, these, these data, yeah, these data that we collect or that we have or that we can access, like that they're somehow kind of like faithful records of an underlying natural reality that's outside of social relations right. and, mm -hmm. you know, economic relations and things like that. But that is, is totally not the case. And that's like never, ever been the case, you know, like it's uh, especially 
at this level that we're talking about, you know, like of population health or whatever, like it really matters um, what we are saying, <laughs> you know, that people are, are, are dying of basically. And it really matters how the process of, you know, the, the data that we're collecting, um, it, it matters how that process is happening. And totally that, that inform Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting that now I'm getting too like, you know, trippy, just like, no, 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 this is no, good. I have so here for, for this. it. <laughs> um, can I do West Virginia? Oh yeah. yeah Please yeah. do yeah. West Virginia. <laughs> so all, I mean, all of these, I think are really important points. And I think, uh, one of the ways that I've been thinking about this, specifically when you look at this uh, data reporting question and the way that the CDC has, the CDC and the Biden administration have been communicating about the pandemic uh, over the you know course of the last couple of years, I feel like it's really important to understand at least the story of the sort of data picture of COVID as an intentional campaign of abstraction. Mm -hmm. um, the way I've been thinking about this is that you could quite succinctly, I think, tell a story about the pandemic in and the end, not just about the pandemic, but about the sociological construction of the end of the pandemic, as we've been talking about it as um, you can tell a story about this in three images, which are, uh, you know, the first image would be the all red everywhere, bright red community transmission map uh, that measured like actual COVID transmission that was in place and like really prominently publicly available until like February 25th, 2022, the day that they released the community levels map, uh, the CDC released that, which then itself is the second image, right? The like pastels, like slightly more cheery, but also like the, all the metrics underlying it have been changed, you know, map the community levels map, uh, with all of its relaxing colors. And finally, the one that we've been talking about just, uh, earlier that we just kind of alluded to, that is the uh, the new wastewater map that, you know, where the color grading goes from calming light blue to calming slightly darker blue. Right. Yeah. Um, Next year, it's just going to be a single zap ding bat. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, when as soon as I saw the wastewater map, I was like, God, I feel like I don't remember if this was on mic or not, but I feel like we made a joke when the community levels map was released. Like, <laughs> what's the next one going to be all green or something? It's like almost <laughs> the same thing. Um, blue is actually smarter. Actually, it's like more insidious because, oh, yeah. uh, you know, green is like, I, I feel like green is like so on the nose or something like, you know, color, whatever. Anyway. It looks like it's been passed through more layers of like management consulting meetings to, to <laughs> come down with like exactly that right tone of blue to economic you know? endemicity blue. It's like oh, Pantone. Yes. <laughs> the Pantone color of the year. Um, oh my God. But so, all of this, as we were preparing for this, it made me think of a story that I was like, okay, obviously this can't, I can't put this in COVID year four because this is, this happened much longer before that. But um, <laughs> let me, let me just kind of dial, uh, I'm, I'm going to take us on for just to maybe conclude through, through sort of maybe probably a lot of the end of this episode. I want to take us uh, down kind of a rabbit hole into the past uh, to an often forgotten story of COVID data manipulation for the purposes of pushing <laughs> reopening. I forgot about um, this till I saw it in your, <laughs> in like your show notes. I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> um, so maybe this will get you both in the mood for COVID year four, where I think it's not a spoiler to say uh, you're going to have to sit through a lot of me reading direct quotes, but um, <laughs> Uh, this, love you. But uh, this is something different, though. So uh, for this, we're going to turn back the clock to fall 2020. 
the first year of the pandemic, long before anything we're talking about in COVID year four or today. So other than obviously this is not going the clock back quite to uh, the beginning of industrial England or whatever, but you know, um, <laughs> that's what I'm here for. <laughs> not quite that far. But so I have just a couple of things I'm going to draw from the primary sources for this just to tell a little story. Um, so in July 2020, Harvard Global Health Institute debuted what it called its COVID risk level map, which I feel like is kind of the er heat level too. map, oh my like God. like kind of the the, the big initial like mm-hmm. here's how you here's how you like we draw our corollary from the uh, the like orange threat system or whatever for airport security or, or something, <laughs> um, and we like translate that onto a a heat map for. COVID transmission. There were clear transmission benchmarks, though, like this much means, you know, that you're in green and this much means you're in yellow. And yeah, and that's what I'm going to get into. Right. Um, So uh, here is how that uh, that map, the Harvard Global Health Institute's uh, COVID risk level map was described in a July 2020 article from Time Out. Quote, live reports from the WHO, USA Fact, OWID and Bing COVID tracker fuel the data behind the project, which ranks each area by four colors, green, yellow, orange, and red. Green counties boast less than one case per 100,000 people and are considered, quote unquote, on track for containment. Um, (laughs) I had to pause when I saw the word containment. containment. (laughs) Like containment, though? I mean, when's the last time you heard that word? I know, right? Uh, Quote, yellow ones, uh, yellow counties are home to less than 10 cases per 100,000 references community spread. Orange areas are under, quote, accelerated spread categories having between 10 to 24 cases per 100,000 people and red counties red was 25 cases per 100,000 residents. Um, For context, I'm just going to say just to show how much the goalposts have shifted. This is no longer the timeout piece, by the way, obviously Um, to show just how much the goalposts have shifted, by the way, by February of 2022, when the CDC debuted the community level system, the community level system made it so that method of counting transmission required literally 100 cases per 100,000 uh, to even count towards the calculation. Yeah. So that's how much more that's how like far the goalposts were shifted anyway. Um, yep. So why am I talking about this? Right. Well, if you're a long time listener and I mean like long long, long, long time listener, uh, you might remember something we talked about way back in 2020, Mm -hmm. uh, which was how the state of West Virginia adopted this particular Harvard map, but graced it with some highly creative flourishes. And I'm going to kind of like bring us through some of this, but I just think this story is really interesting as this kind of example of like, I just feel like it rhymes with so many of the changes and the the levels of abstraction that the CDC has done in the intervening years since. So anyway, rather than describe this whole event myself, uh, I'm going to do the didactic archives thing uh, and let the coverage speak, let like old coverage speak for me again for just a second. Um, But also because like, just, I find this, this like reporting that I'm about to read from a fascinating historical document uh, at this point. And this is something that I remember like, I remember we talked about it. Uh, We had a much smaller audience then. So I I imagine a lot of people listening to this won't have heard this. But also, like, I remember that this didn't really break through. This was a big story in West Virginia, but it didn't really break through national Mm -hmm. news coverage. Yeah. Um, You would have had to be in, like, the first uh, one or 2,000 people to ever listen to Death Panel to have heard that episode. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, so this is from an outlet in West Virginia called Mountain State Spotlight from September 18th, 2020. The headline is the governor tweaked, quote unquote, tweaked a Harvard COVID map. Their experts say the state's changes are flawed. And I'm going to read some from this piece. Quote, in August, Governor Jim Justice introduced West Virginia's parents, teachers and coaches to a new Saturday night ritual refreshing a state website for updates to the color-coded map that would determine whether ball fields and schoolhouses would be open the following week. State officials modeled the map after one developed by the Harvard Global Health Institute, which places counties into one of four risk levels, green, yellow, orange, or red, based on the number of COVID-19 cases per capita. The map developed by West Virginia's Department of Health and Human Resources looks similar to the Harvard map, lending a veneer of academic rigor to the state's school reopening plans. Um, Remember, this is like September 2020. But the two maps are never the same, the Harvard map and and West Virginia's map. West Virginia officials have relied on outdated data, raised the cutoff that determines each county's risk level, and altered the methodology for determining the total number of cases. <laughs> Dr. Thomas Sai, who's um, described in this article uh, as a health policy researcher and uh, surgeon at Harvard, uh, Dr. Thomas Sai said the goal of the Harvard team made up of ethicists, policy researchers, and public health experts was to create a single clear metric that could be used by cities and counties across the country to assess the extent of the coronavirus outbreak. Quote, everyone was talking about reopening using different terminology, different levels of color coding, and it was one of our goals to develop a consensus, he said. Article continues, quote, but that scientific consensus proved incompatible with the desires of West Virginia leaders who wanted to get athletes back onto the field and students back into school as quickly as possible. For weeks, the most obvious similarity between the two maps has been the color palette, and even that disappeared when Governor Justice alchemized five orange counties into gold on Tuesday. Um, (laughs) They'll explain more on this later, but what they're saying is uh, Governor Jim Justice decided to relabel five counties as a new color, gold, um, signifying (laughs) less COVID protections. Anyway, God, uh, I forgot about the gold, (laughs) right? Uh, It continues, quote, on August 14th, 2020, Justice announced the school alert system as a way to determine where it was safe to bring students back into the classroom. Counties that were green and yellow would be able to offer in-person construction. Counties that were orange and red, where the metric determined there was a high risk of community spread of the virus, would be virtual only. (laughs) During the announcement, Marsh explained the map's origins. Quote, we're really going off of the Harvard Global Health Institute model, and this is a model that's really generated by public health experts, he said. Oh, honey. (laughs) But the fundamental differences between the Harvard and West Virginia metric were immediately obvious. On Justice's map, the state was largely green. On Harvard's, it was still a wash in orange and yellow. West Virginia leaders had raised the cutoffs determining the point at which counties had enough cases to qualify them for more risky colors. Mm. Counties were green, (laughs) minimal community transmission, uh, with up to seven cases per 100,000 residents, and yellow up to 15. In Harvard's metric, the cutoffs were 1 and 10, respectively. Uh, Article continues, quote, after the metric was announced... Kanawha County Commissioner Ben Salongo, a Democrat who is challenging justice in the upcoming gubernatorial election, held a press conference to accuse the governor of fudging the numbers and distorting reality. By that afternoon, following justice's own press conference in which he attacked the media's, quote, saber rattling as, quote, (laughs) ridiculous, the state's map had been changed to a hue closer to the Harvard metric. So they changed the color 
back. Yeah. Um, the cutoffs for red and orange were synced with Harvard once again. So I know this is like this is like a longer quote than any of the ones that I'm going to read in COVID year four, by the way. But I just again, such an ama- <laughs> such an amazing document. So I'm anyway, just kind of quote, I've left my body a little bit. I it's. <laughs> I'm experiencing weird like time compression dilation. I don't know what it is, but like I remember so vividly when all of this happened and it was so outrageous. Like it was so outrageous three years ago. Well, and changing the cutoffs now is basically exactly what again, you know, exactly what the CDC did later. Now it's just the MO of, you know, every state, the federal government, the CDC, everything. But back then, I mean, it was outrageous. Yeah. I mean, this is this is like how normalization works, though, right? Uh, I'm gonna I'm just gonna pick up again. Still, uh, this is this piece from West Virginia's Mountain State Spotlight um, from September 2020. Uh, Okay, so uh, again, to to recap, they've uh, they've been called out on the fact that they have changed the thresholds for where a county passes from one color to the next, uh, adjusting them to make it so it requires more spread to you know, do public health uh, interventions or to have uh, recommendations go in place. So then it continues, quote, but there were still significant differences. Throughout August, the case numbers in Fayette County reported by the state's Department of Health and Human Resources had lagged behind the numbers published by Harvard and the New York Times. By the end of the month, West Virginia was reporting a seven-day moving average of just over 10 cases per 100,000 residents. Fayette County was now in the orange, but just barely. According to Harvard, the county had moved deep into the red and had nearly five times more cases than the numbers reported by West Virginia itself. The reason? The Mount Olive Correctional Complex. The state prison in Fayette County had reported an outbreak. Nearly 14% of the prison's inmates came down with the virus. But prisoners and nursing home residents are not included in the West Virginia metric. And until August 17th, staff members at those institutions had been counted only as half a case, quote, (laughs) because those individuals are not in the community, (laughs) according to a press release from DHHR. So, um, yeah, uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll get back to this. But of course, you know, this is this classic uh, like, oh, that's not (laughs) I mean, the, it's not part of the community. Jesus, Jesus Christ. Anyway, sorry. Uh, I want to. I want to get through the rest of this though. Just uh, and then we can, the we can half talk case about this. Is a really beautiful innovation. Yeah. yeah. Um. Not in the community. Just to uh, round this out, it continues. Quote: Officials have not just changed metrics. Sometimes they ignore them. The state has a COVID-19 data review panel, which includes Marsh and the state's top public health officials. The panel reviews case numbers and has the final say on each county's risk designation. Last week, the panel downgraded Monroe County from red to orange, despite the county remaining above the 25 cases per 100,000 cutoff, because the panel, quote, concluded the level of COVID-19 transmission in Monroe County was improving. Ah! <laughs> um, so again, totally subjective choice. Um, it, it feels continues. like it's better. That and works. Cal- and Calhoun County remained in the yellow with its schools open last week, despite having enough cases to qualify as orange. Marsh said that the panel reviewed case reports from the county and determined the outbreak was confined to, quote, an extended group of people who were immediately quarantined. Um, yes, quote, I Mar- mean, that is typically 
<laughs> that is typically uh, the medium of an outbreak is an extended group of people. <laughs> they go for com- they go for comment, quote, we're not trying to actually change what the data is. We're trying to make sure the data is accurate and trying to make sure the data is accurately assessed, said Marsh. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Is that familiar. what you're doing? <laughs> this is On Tuesday. So I go to your desires. On Tuesday, Justice announced yet another change on the map. He added another category, gold. This is the one we're talking about. Gold, a color chosen by Justice, that effectively lifted restrictions on five of the eight red and orange counties. <laughs> effective so, immediately. Like, West Virginia football guy. <laughs> to pick effective gold. immediately, those counties would be allowed to hold in person classes. The next day, Justice announced nearly 80 infected students, now quarantined on WVU's campus, West Virginia University, would be treated as a single case. He said that change, quote, moves us more toward the finish line and that prior reported numbers may have been, quote, somewhat skewed. To, f- to round this out, I'm going to go to a different piece of reporting about this thing in specific. Uh, so this is about the, the school's thing uh, and brings us back to this thing of like, treating a congregate facility any congregate facility as though it's like one case um so this is from wv news west virginia september 16th 2020 quote most west virginia university students who test positive for covid19 will soon be counted as a single case governor justice said wednesday West Virginia University students living in on-campus housing who test positive will be required to move into Arnold Apartments for at least 10 days, which will allow them to be considered as being in a, quote, congregate setting. All of the positive cases among populations living in congregate settings, such as nursing homes and correctional facilities, count as a single case toward a county's seven-day or 14-day cumulative average of new cases of the virus. That's under West Virginia's... uh, changes to this uh harvard harvard metric the change in how wvu cases are counted is intended to reduce the impact of the university's positive cases on the rest of monongalia county jim justice said apologies to any of our listeners in west virginia if i have gotten any of these pronunciations wrong (laughs) by the way uh the final thing quote from jim justice quote we have a population with students who come into a county and all of a sudden that county is flooded maybe with positives And that county is skewed or biased in a way that hurts the county's ability to go to school or play sports or whatever, he said. It hurts them. So we've been trying to figure out what is fair, unquote. Again, that is a quote from West Virginia Governor Jim Justice. Now, a couple of things. Cabela's redneck energy from Jim Justice. Jim Justice is a Republican. But the fact that this is similar to what the CDC did in the intervening years, I think is pretty damning. Mm -hmm. Oh, Um, absolutely. No, thank you for walking us through that already. And I'm sorry we were so unruly. It's just, I felt (laughs) like I felt, yeah, I felt like I fell out of time and I experienced uh, every stage of rage that I have experienced since the beginning of the pandemic through to today over again while you were reading those because it really is this kind of ominous foreshadowing when you look back at it now mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. it's so many echoes of like the week of february 21st 2022 25th 
Well, that that's the Friday. The the week started with Rochelle Walensky on Andy Slavitt's show on the Monday saying masks are the scarlet letter of the pandemic. Right. Then on Thursday, the research impact memo like leaked that said um, that this polling firm, which was advising Biden um, going into the midterm elections called Impact Research, wrote this memo that was dated the 24th that later came out. That said, uh, the administration needed to understand that, quote, the more we talk about the threat of COVID and onerously restrict people's lives because of it, the more we turn them against us. And then on Friday of that week, the 25th is, you know, in the Friday dump. That was all the same week. That was all the same fucking week. That's when the map was shifted and we lost the community transmission level map and the case number scales went from being like, it was so ridiculous the previous um, low the indicator turned green overnight, <laughs> it turned yeah. to green overnight. Then, you know, OK, so I went back to my notes uh, previously on the community transmission level system, a seven day average test positivity rate of 100 cases per 100,000 people would qualify a county to be rated high risk. So as of like that map switch over on the 25th, the new metric now so substantially de-emphasizes case counts to the point that cases are not basically a factor at all in risk calculation until a county crosses the new threshold of 200 cases per 100,000 people, twice the level that previously qualified as high risk. Now, at that level, there wasn't even a recommendation of masks anymore, right? And that had been twice as high as the previous high level on the old system. And it was combined. That indicator was weirdly combined. You know, the number of cases, if I if I recall correctly, was combined with an indicator about hospital capacity. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it was it was they both, you know, were kind of shifting the threshold for transmission. And they were also kind of like coupling it to this like other indicator. You know what I mean? That's that's temporally out of sync. Um, with the first one, you know, so that's yeah. like that's many moves of like abstraction and, and mystification in one. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, you. no, my new my new notes uh, or my, my new notes, my old notes uh, continue. This new low level of transmission uh, states that unless hospitals are over 15 percent occupied by COVID-19 patients in the county, the CDC does not recommend masking indoors. That is 20 times the previous low indicator yeah. and double yeah. the previous high indicator. So um, wild. Yeah, it this. Yeah, it's it's well, that's what I I mean, reading back through this 2020 scenario, right? Like the echoes of every move the Biden administration has played out, right, are in that Mm -hmm. one moment, right? Like counting all of the college students as one case because you're cramming them into one dorm, you know, the congregate facilities are not a part of the community, but they're separate. You know, the oh, my gosh. Which, by the way, just to I, very important to say, obviously, congregate facilities, especially prisons, jails, nursing homes have been a driver of uh-huh. spread, um, mm-hmm. a huge and disproportionate place where the impact of COVID has been felt. And I would just add, I mean, you know, for example, nursing home for to talk about one congregate facility for a second, nursing homes, something like only 1% of the U.S. population lives in nursing homes, but or lives in nursing homes at any given time. Yeah. Um, but they have accounted for something like 20% of all COVID deaths so yeah. far. Um, and also like on the prisons and jails thing, I think it's like really important to mention that all this stuff that we're talking about about the Biden administration and states rushing to reopen uh, how they rushed to undo 
you know, as many policies and programs as they could. Generally speaking, prisons and jails have basically done the opposite, yeah. right? Like at the beginning of the pandemic, they used COVID as a justification to further crack down on incarcerated people on the inside and make their policies, you know, even more draconian than they already were. Um, and, you know, I don't mean in terms of like this wasn't in this wasn't done for the purpose of like protecting people just to be clear it's not like protecting people was the goal it was just like in terms of justifying incarceration getting worse and by and large those policies are still in place mm-hmm. right um if you ask someone who's on the inside or someone who has been incarcerated in the last couple of years you know they will tell you that what is understood as a you know covid lockdown what a covid lockdown means to them means something very different from you know what all the right wingers and liberals complain about uh and something entirely different from the like the even the you know pay people to stay home stuff that um libs used to laugh off as unrealistic Mm -hmm. and too expensive and stuff so just has to be said yeah well and now we have our latest map which is all blue Mm -hmm. i mean this wastewater data map um yeah do we want to talk about boy where do we start on this one i mean so earlier this week, right, we had the new this new map released by the CDC, which is uh, coding the entire country in basically dark blue through kind of a light teal and then white with gray for no data. And it basically blankets each state in a color and gives you not like a county breakdown, but a state level kind of measurement of very high, which is dark blue and darker blue. High, which is medium dark blue and kind of darkish teal, moderate that's teal and light teal, low that's pastel teal and mint green, and <laughs> minimal that's pastel mint and white, and then insufficient data, which is gray. And now, again, this is not broken down by county, so each state gets one color. Which is so, why? I mean, first, just right off the bat, and I, I genuinely don't know the answer to this, but how meaningful is something like a state level wastewater like COVID RNA measurement? Like, I'm really wondering how that is calculated, because it seems to me that, you know, you can quantify the amount of like COVID RNA in wastewater from like a, a municipal, you know, or like a like a yeah, like a, 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 a particular water system. Yes. Um, and so I'm not sure, like, there must be some process for, like, aggregating and, like, perhaps waiting. You know what I mean? If there are multiple wastewater, you know, if if there are multiple water systems with wastewater testing in a state, like, how is that done? Again, you know, this is like the, like, what is, what's going on behind the scenes here? Like, how are they deriving this figure that they're then slapping a color on? <laughs> and, you know. Yes. I mean, that's a very important question, because if you go to CDC.gov's COVID data tracker under their wastewater surveillance page, you can see the the, the version of the map that's the older version of the wastewater map that used to um, be the only one that was available before this new blue one came out. And that one shows you pinpointed where each collection point is, is. Mm-hmm. and how many collection points there are. Um, so some states, you know, have two. Um, three, sorry, like, you know, 12, four, Mm -hmm. I think Louisiana has four. It looks like Beatrice meant Georgia, not Louisiana. She will correct this in a moment. You know, this is not, um, 
there's broad coverage in in certain states, but even in a big state like New York, like I'm seeing huge parts of Western New York that are just a hole. Well, right? um, and, you know, since you mentioned Louisiana, again, <laughs> this is how, you know, the 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 social processes by which data are constructed, you know, we we tend to take evidence of this social construction process as bias when in fact it's reliable evidence about how the world is um because there are many many like i'm just thinking that there is risk of bias in these wastewater data because there are a lot of people in the united states who have septic systems particularly yes. in totally. the u.s yep. south and are not yep. hooked into like a wastewater system yep particularly these you know very rural, very poor areas of the South, you know, and so you can see how, I mean, this is, this is like how the sausage of, of health, you know, so-called health disparities yeah. gets made. You know what I mean? Because where, you know, where is the, the surveillance indicator for, for these places where people aren't hooked into like a big, a big municipal system? Well, and I'll just say, as someone who's lived in the South, I said Louisiana, and I said, that doesn't sound right, and I'm blind, so let me double check. It was actually <laughs> Georgia that I was talking about, ah. because it would be ridiculous for the state of Louisiana that has one of the largest freshwater waterways to only have, like, four water treatment collection points. Yeah. That would be wild. But still, as you're saying, Abby, one, this is collecting from only people who are hooked into the sewer grid. Two... There are 19,000 registered cities, towns, municipalities in the United States. There are 1,728 wastewater sampling sites. Right. Yeah. And there are only 1,195 of those sites that the CDC says are sites with current data. Mm. So it's a lot of holes. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of holes. That's a lot of uh, of extrapolating from from an average that only speaks to specific and and okay let's say all right well how many big towns and cities right because a lot of them are small three thousand plus have over ten thousand people so we're covering maybe a third of the cities in the United States that have ten thousand people or more in them like this is not something that you can make a whole statewide color map with mm-hmm. well exactly even Amari. if. there are ways you know what i mean there are ways there are like sampling techniques that you can use you know so that you can use like a small sample of something to to represent you know much bigger you know like political polling you know makes use of these methodologies and whatever but i feel like wastewater is a little bit it's hard to do that with because like and I feel like these are just challenges with wastewater in general. Like the wastewater mix in every water system is totally different. Like the number of people and animals as well, you know, like contributing to like the viral load of a, of a watershed is like constantly changing. Um, and it's not the same between different places. And so I, I feel like the CDC is always saying this, like, oh, you know, like we're collecting data from all these different wastewater sites, you know, and that's giving us a good picture. And it's like, Ugh, like you're saying that because, yes, like in theory, like sampling, you know, representative sampling is something that can be done. But I am a little bit I'm like not quite believing that you really can do something like that with something like wastewater um that is so heterogeneous you know what i mean and just depends on so many like dynamic factors um all the time 
Well, and are we saying only people in large cities who have implemented wastewater data surveillance systems deserve to know how much COVID is circulating yes. around them? Like that yeah, is what that's we're exactly saying. That's exactly what we're saying. <laughs> where we've we've. Uh, I mean, the, the, the other thing that really frustrates me about the system is if we think about this conceptually, right? Like before, yes, we were basing it on hospitalizations in some part, which was a lagging indicator with the community level system, the uh, pastel map. The community transmission level system was more based on testing, pure testing numbers. But wastewater surveillance is not based on pure testing or a combination of testing and hospitalizations. It's based on passive surveillance. So none of the people who are shedding, who are being recorded as cases, are necessarily aware well, that they have COVID. We no have one's, no proof no one's, of that. No one's being recorded as cases. Well, and nobody's being notified. Oh, hey, yeah. it's not like we can say, oh, hey, like our wastewater surveillance system saw that someone in your house has COVID. No, no, Here's no. Here's a call from your DWP. Like, that's not yeah. how it works. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Like, yeah. So so this is like a a perfect sort of you know, COVID fantasy map that we've got going on because it's a it's a passive surveillance system. So it's not imposing on people, you know, it's not reminding people. Um, but it is purporting to show a metric that gives you a sense of what the spread is in each state. And then coding it in all blue. Coding it in, a, in all blue in an inoffensive, calming color. <laughs> There's not imposing. Blue. Yeah. yeah. Meditation you know, app blue. What did you call it? E economic endemicity blue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, which is a beautiful, perfect. No notes. Um, right. And so, so what we have here is actually an elaborate fantasy that they are providing us with accurate information about the pandemic that stands in for the fact that, yeah, that this is just as good as uh, lab reporting as transmission maps. Yeah. Right. The, you know, what we're working with here is not anything near robust, anything near comprehensive, anything near definitive, nor uh, as a sort of social construction, does it communicate anything about like what your actual sort of COVID risk is other than for, you know, let's say um, people who live in, you know, about 800 cities well in surveilled. the United yeah. States. Yeah. Like, no, I mean, I think this is, this is kind of the thing. It's uh, especially with so much other stuff taken away, you know, I'll take I'll I'll take another metric, obviously, but you know, we have to be real about what yeah, the limitations of that metric good. are. Wastewater's good. I think we should have it. You know, like I'm, right. I'm in favor of wastewater surveillance, but we need but to be clear best, about what it is and is not. Yeah. I mean, but wastewater data is best in relation to other metrics, some of which yes. are metrics that we are intentionally not doing anymore. Things yeah. that the CDC allowed to drop. And this is why, you know, I think, you know, I think this gets back to kind of my... Uh, biggest kind of general point about especially why this kind of got spun into its own conversation separate from COVID year four, which is like this sort of like intentional push towards increasing abstraction and in, like increasing abstraction about what is or is not actually happening mm -hmm. with any given COVID metric. Abby, I apologize if this is like the apologies if this is the point that you were about to bring in but i'll just attribute it to you i think <laughs> when we were talking about this before like uh as, as we were kind of planning this you said something to the effect of like it almost seems like it's intentional that the only data sources that they are like allowing us to have leave us with like little to do but conjecture 
Yeah. I mean, like like the type of conjecture that we were doing earlier in this episode, yep. like mm-hmm. being really specific about, well, you know, there are all these limitations. What do we really know? I don't, you know, you know, there are so many things about the way that uh, the the data reporting has changed that make it so much more difficult. And in some cases with certain things impossible to tell, to, you know, point to a, you know, possible in any way to agree upon reality of what's happening mm-hmm. right mm-hmm, now. Yeah. And, you know, that seems pretty clearly like it was part of the, you know, project of the, of what the Biden COVID response mm-hmm. has oh, been, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's interesting. And I don't think it's an accident that we as individual people have become progressively more and more responsibilized to manage the threat of COVID ourselves, you know, with the implication, you know, the rhetoric is always like, oh, well, you do this by being a super informed you know, a super informed person and like know your risk and, you know, right. use all this stuff as that's been happening. This progressive, you know, retrenchment of the information that's even being collected um, about COVID. And then, you know, obviously this like weird process of abstraction, you know, those things have been proceeding at the at the same time, kind of in parallel to the point where, yeah, I, I feel like we are just kind of limited to trying to make educated guesses from what we have, which is not yeah. great. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, that's a bummer. But, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, in any case, uh, I suppose I'm going to just close this one. I'll just go ahead and say join us for COVID year four, um, which I promise is low in conjecture and high on didactic receipts. Um, <laughs> Uh, I really, I truly, for those listening who've like gotten uh, this far in the episode may or may not, you know, people listen out of order sometimes may or may not have listened to COVID year four already. Some of you, by the time you're hearing this, um, I do hope you appreciate it. I've been working on it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, can attest. Uh, <laughs> yes. I still have quite a bit to do, uh, on it. We've got all of us quite a bit to do on it and to record it. Um, but I think, I think it's going to be a very good one. Yeah, um, you definitely pulled like a Tim Rogers on this one. It's uh yeah, I'm entering my <laughs> uh, I'm entering my auteur era. Um, <laughs> but but anyway, yeah. So uh, join us for that on Monday. The story of sort of fall 2022 and what we have experienced thus far of 2023 in the sociological production of the end of the pandemic. And thank you all for listening. Yeah. And if all goes well, this will be the very first episode with all five of us <gasps> on at the You're same time. You're going to jinx it. You're going to jinx it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's I called manifesting. It. <laughs> it is manifesting, right? Like <laughs> this is a this is a good spot to leave it. We have a lot of work to do for COVID year four. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod to get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of bonus episodes. Sincerely, truly, deeply, from the bottom of our hearts, patrons, thank you so much. I really am not sure how any of the work that we've done this year would have been possible without your support. So really deeply appreciate it and uh, cheers to another year of... uh, talking through the horrors together, right? (laughs) And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, pre-order a copy of Jules's new book coming in January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny, or request them both at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now. Free Palestine. Free Palestine. Solidarity forever. 
Stay alive another week. Bye.